You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. I'm not going to read all this. That's why I highlighted the parts in red so that we can just capture very quickly what happened in each one of these previous uh conversations. The first was in, the, in the, the very first scenes that we saw, there was a recognition in McKenzie that there was clearly a broken heart, a broken life, and broken identity. And just a simple point is that, that there's not any real help that can be given, not any real help that will sustain if the person's not hungry for the help. This is why when someone calls me and they say, would you mind visiting with my son? You'd mind visiting with my friend? I'm always very glad to, but I said, just give them my number. Because kind of the first thing I do is if they're willing to kind of break that barrier and contact me, then I know that at least pr- primarily they're ready and we have a good place to start. But I have to know that there's a little bit of hunger, a little bit of readiness uh, before we begin because you can't force feed someone healing. You can't force feed restoration. The second, the second week was that there will be no healing without an encounter. This is, as, as we shared then, there, there's a, there has to be a great move away from religion to relationship. Religion, we, we, we talk a lot about it, but Paul was probably the most religious person we could read about we could study about. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was, he was a zealot. He knew what he knew. He was eager in it. He was persecuting Christians because of it. He was, he was standing there as they, and holding the coats of the ones who killed Stephen. So we know, we know he valued religion above everything else. Until when? Until he had an encounter. Until he met someone. It wasn't about the, about the knowledge he had anymore. It was about a person that he met. So there will be no great transition, no great transformation, no great healing without that encounter. The third one, the, the next week, is that there will be no healing or restoration without, uh, without a drastic correction in who we believe that God is. We have done some devastating things in the name of God and believe some terrible things about him. But we have to begin to to let the Holy Spirit bring us into a new understanding of who God is. We have to know him as Father. We have to know him as Papa. We have to know him as Abba, Daddy. It seems way too familiar. But I would tell you, I would much rather us err on the side of familiar and to know God's heart and to be intimate with it as a daddy with his children than than as a God too distant to touch and too distant to know and to believe he's too distant to really care what's going on in our life. So, So there has to be this shift in who we know God to be, not away from truth. Because I can assure you, if we'll just get into that word, we'll discover who God is we'll discover that when he says to Moses, and Moses says, I want to see you. And God says, no one has ever seen me, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I will hide you in the cleft of this rock, and I will let all of my goodness pass before you. The nature of God is the goodness of God. Again, we have done some strange things in our perceptions, but when we look at Jesus, was there ever a time when he wasn't loving now, he would, he would confront. He was a revolutionary, that's for sure. But what, did he ever mistreat anyone? Did he ever? No. And then he says in Hebrews 1 that he was the expressed image of the Father. Look at me. See him. When we begin to understand, I can look at Jesus and know the Father's heart. I can look at Jesus and understand what the Spirit's doing in us. And it will begin by, by its nature to shift who we know God to be. The fourth one There'll be no healing until we believe, trust, and absolutely know that God knows and loves us. Do we know that we know that we know 
that he knows our story. There's not a single thing that's going to surprise him. He knows our story. And the whole point of this is not so that he can discover what's wrong with us. This isn't a diagnosis. He already knows. The point is healing. I wonder how often you and I would ever come to a place of healing if the doctor didn't tell us what, the, what was wrong, didn't bring us to a point where we understood that there was healing that was needed. Like if the doctor said, well, I'm going to schedule you for surgery. He's like, what? Why are you going to do that? You hadn't even told me that there's anything wrong. What are you going to operate on? See, we, we would never approach it that way. But we do need to understand that he's, he knows our story. The diagnosis set, is set. He does know exactly how to do the surgery, how to do the extraction that's necessary. The fifth one is where we studied last week. There will be no healing or restoration, no deliverance, no repentance, and no salvation until what we know becomes faith. We know a tremendous lot about God. We know we can talk about the Trinity. We can talk about the names of God, Jehovah Jireh. You know, we can talk about all those things, Jehovah Nisi. I mean, we can describe him. We can go back in the Old Testament and talk about history. But until that knowledge becomes faith, there will be no healing. He says we know a lot, but, but, we, but it profits us nothing. Again, just go back to the simple illustration. If Johnny was standing here in, out in the aisle looking at that chair, would you believe that it would hold you if you sat in it? Would you believe it? I hope so. Yeah, he's doing it right now. You did it yesterday. It did it last week. Yeah, sure it would. Our belief would, but how much would, you, would that belief profit you? None. Yeah, not yet. Because I could stand here believing this chair would, would hold me until I passed out from exhaustion. Because that belief has to turn to faith because when I turn around and the weight of my body hits that chair, that chair goes to work on my behalf. That's faith. You know, trust keeps me in the chair because I'm not wondering if, if I continue to sit here, will it hold me? What we know about God has to turn to faith or it will profit us nothing. I know a lot of very knowledgeable people who are living in great turmoil because what they know has never turned to faith. So that brings us to the sixth point and to, 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 get, to look at it, instead of looking at the summary, let's go back to page 20. This is an unusual scene in this movie. It's a wonderful one and I almost had to just go, as I'm, as I'm preparing, I just had to almost go line by line. I, what, there weren't many I could skip because each one needed to be talked about. But, but bullet number six says, there will be no healing, no restoration, no deliverance, no repentance, and no salvation until the Holy Spirit reveals truth. I'll continue. The Holy Spirit brings us into the mysterious and the miraculous. For those of you who have been in my office or, in, or somewhere met with me, in any of that, did you ever encounter a moment when you wondered, I wonder how he knew that? How did he know that about me? How did he already see that? How could he possibly know that? What's happening there? The Holy Spirit is bringing truth which will hit people as mysterious and miraculous. It's no different than Rhea and Amanda standing here prophesying over people and saying, how are they doing that? How are they getting it to the point where there's no question that they understand and they're looking at me? That the Holy Spirit is talking to them about me. It, it happens so often that as, as I'm sitting at my desk, and it's not just unique to me. I don't, I don't have any special privilege. It's not unique to me. But when I'm meeting with somebody, the Holy Spirit will say something to me. Give me a question to ask. 
and that question will unlock the floodgates of a story. To ask this, I'm, I'm sitting at a, a table at JMB Coffee with a lady several years ago, and I'm, I hear this question in my head, and I know it's the Holy Spirit, but it's one of those questions that you just really don't want to ask. It's like this, there's no way that this is going to come out and sound right. But it's like, I knew it was him. I knew it was his question. So I asked her, what do you know about when you were conceived? What an odd question. What do you know about when you were conceived? And she said, well, and she gave, she knew one thing, this one factual thing about that. And she shared it with me. And I said, is there anybody you could ask? She said, well, I've got an aunt that I, I think I could ask. And so I said, well, ask her. I don't know where this is going, but I know, I know what I'm supposed to ask. I know there's something in this. So uh, when we met the next week, uh, I wish I could tell you the story. But it unfolded a story that we would have never stumbled onto. It was as mysterious how in the world could this question that the Holy Spirit gave unlock a whole lifetime of truth. Buried long ago, something she did not know. And all of a sudden there out of that one question, there was an unbelievable story that it was unlocked. And that's not unusual. That's more, one of the more graphic ones. But very often... I'll be sitting there at my desk and the Holy Spirit will give me a word. This one was a bit odd as well. I ask, I'm sitting there, ask, and the Holy Spirit said, I was with a couple, a husband and wife, and I, was, I asked, the Holy Spirit gave me this question. Was there ever another man? And I sure didn't want to ask that one. I mean, I've got them both sitting in there. Some, some, this is fixing to get real touchy. Was there ever another man? But I asked the question, and he said, yes. Not what I was expecting. But once again, healing, restoration, a story that was brought to the surface because God knew how to unlock the story. When the Holy Spirit begins to reveal what we don't know, again, we have to go into these recognizing, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know the stories behind the stories. I don't know the situations that are back there. I don't know. You know, Mrs. Hill sitting up here on the front. You know, I don't know how many months you, you and I met before, because we were going back in her childhood, got back to four years old, got back to, I think, three years old. It's like, it's got to be back here somewhere. This moment of brokenness has got to be back here somewhere. And she came in my office, and she said, I just feel like you're going to say something today that's going to just blow my mind. And uh, she, uh, we went through the whole time, and she was, she was about to get up and leave, and I said, oh, no, Johnny, I know what it is. The Holy Spirit showed me something about, about her story. And I don't know if it blew her mind, but it blew mine. And it suddenly took us from four years old and three years old to 16 years old when the devastation occurred. You see, the Holy Spirit knows how to bring truth that will seem mysterious and miraculous to unlock a story, and there won't be healing without it because we've already learned to cope with all we know. We've adjusted to what we know. It's only when he begins to speak truth about us and about the situation and about the circumstances and the other people that were involved when he begins to speak truth, things radically change. And there will be no great healing or no great deliverance or transformation until the Holy Spirit begins to speak truth to us. He already knows the story. How are we going to discover it except by him? Let me finish reading here what I wrote. 
For many who are unfamiliar with the Spirit, there will be, will be more mysterious than miraculous at the beginning. If this is about you, if, if, if the teaching is really kind of hit, uh, hitting you directly, the challenge is to remain open, listening and watching all he reveals, uh, should be as he reveals those things that are absolutely life-changing to you. I've discovered that the people who are affected the most are the people who come in that are truly open. If, if they have this natural guard up, the Holy Spirit doesn't get impatient. I don't get impatient. It doesn't matter to me. But the speed of which things can occur happens based on that openness. If he finds us open, then things happen very, very quickly. Let me continue. If you are ministering to someone else, if you're here really learning how to minister to someone else, it's very important that you let the Spirit bring the mysterious through you. And how does that occur? One, you speak those things that you hear from the Spirit, even if it sounds odd or un unusual to you. I, you know, years ago, I don't know how many years ago, Steve and I were sitting in, in J&B. I don't, know, I don't know how well Steve remembers this, but I remember it real well because I remember the look on his face. When I told him, I said, the Holy Spirit is telling me to, to tell you to go buy a yellow shirt. And once again, fascinating where, where that took us. And now the deliverance after so many years that's just fully come. But it was so interesting that it's like I I, it's like I want to guard that moment and say, I don't think I need to say that because it seems absolutely disconnected from what we're really talking about. Why in the world would there be this instruction by the Holy Spirit to tell somebody to go buy a yellow shirt? But it unlocked the story. See, you can't be afraid when the odd comes. You can't be afraid to say it when you know that you know that it originated in the Holy Spirit. Now that, again, that's a, that takes a little time to know that it's him, but when you begin to speak it out and you watch these results happen and people are set free because of something that the Holy Spirit revealed, it becomes a little easier as you begin to hear him and speak these things. And sometimes it will certainly make people uncomfortable when you speak it. The second one, you speak or share those things he gives you with the same kindness directness and tenderness as he spoke them to you. Whether I'm preaching or teaching or anything else, I don't have the privilege of changing the message by changing the tenor of the word spoken. If he gives me something in gentleness and I, and I share back with you under an anointing the exact same words he gave me, but I speak them in anger, I change the message. My responsibility under that anointing is not only to give the words, but to give them under the same emotion, the same gentleness, the same kindness, the same direction or the same instruction. I don't have the privilege of adjusting that and changing it. I'm supposed to give, and we're supposed to give just as we received it, and expect that he will speak and expect that it will be life-changing. Most of us in here in these moments really haven't yet been convinced that God's going to speak to us in a way that will be useful for somebody else. That hurdle has often not crossed. We really don't believe that God's going to speak to us with the clarity that I can actually have something to say and that the something that I say by the Holy Spirit will be life-changing. But guess what? If you're sitting there trying to help somebody and you don't believe that God's going to do anything that will be life-changing, you're going to have a real hard time convincing hope and creating hope in somebody else. If they don't see this anticipation in you, this excitement in you that, that uh, he's about to do this great work, and I, I've shared this with you before, and some of you have experienced it probably to your, uh, to your uh, uh, I'm not, I don't know what to say. You'll begin to tell your story, and it's a, it's a hurtful one, and I can't help but start to laugh. Like there's this real disconnect between your story and my laughter. 
And, I, and it, it always creates a question, why are you laughing? It's because the, the, as your story's going down this awful path, hope is shooting through the roof with me because I know there's an end to that story. I know that there's a transformation waiting. I know there's a great exchange, your brokenness for his healing. I, I already sense it. Well, I love to be able to tell them that because I want them to leave with a margin of hope that this seems to be different than any other time that I've sat down with somebody. Maybe there is a chance that I can leave here truly transformed and not just another version of broken, which is what I've always gotten before. Maybe it will be different. If, if we can create that much hope, the door swings open slightly and we're, and we're ready to go. <clears throat> Here's the first scene. Mackenzie attempts to leave. He's already had this confrontation with Papa and he attempts to leave and he has this confrontation with the Holy Spirit. Stop right there before we move on. Just to be clear, we're not justifying anything. Now remember, these are words being delivered in, here in the movie, but also in our story by the Holy Spirit. These are truths that we have to get to because the Spirit really begins to t tell us and teach us. Under bullet A, I wrote there, it is quite challenging to reframe a mind when it is convinced that God seems to ignore or by deference minimize that which has broken our hearts. And I will tell you, most believers have that perception of God. He knows what broke my heart. He knows what I'm struggling with. He knows where I am. He knows all these things. We tell, we, we tell each other that he's om, omniscient, He's omnipresent. We tell each other those things, but on a practical basis, I don't feel like he knows where I am at all. And I'm not certain, based on what I've seen so far, that he particularly cares because I don't see him involved in it. I don't see him taking steps. It seems as if he's ignoring it, or at least he's minimizing what I'm going through. Healing is not always wanted because the raw emotion of the pain and suffering can become the best company or the best friend that the brokenhearted often keep. What does that mean? It means that very often somebody that is struggling has only known themselves by that struggle. I'll, I'll give this as an example. I had a person a few years ago that was not divorced but separated. And I, I went down to their house and I told them, I said, you've got to be careful because whether you know it or not, you are in grief and grief has been the company you now keep. Sitting in the house, getting home, getting home from work, sitting in that chair, turning on that TV and, and, and grief was keeping him company. Grief had actually become a person that was keeping him company. And at the time, because of the anger and the frustration and everything that was going on, that was the company that he wanted. He didn't, he, he didn't want to be better. He didn't want to feel better because he wanted that company. Many don't immediately want to give it up. Some don't want to give it up because they have never known themselves in true freedom. 
That's often scary for somebody whose life was broken when they were a child. When something happened to them in childhood and they've been living under a false identity for 20 and 30 and 40 years, and you start talking to them about that being gone, about the freedom that that brings, and they've never known themselves outside of that brokenness. And I have people that are hesitant to take the step into freedom because they don't know what that next step is like. They know what the brokenness looks like. They've managed it and coped with it for so long. But when you talk about freedom, like I don't even know, I don't even know what freedom looks like because I've been in this mindset, I've been in this brokenness for so long. Let's go ahead. I put here, the Holy Spirit lays the cards on the table. This is about healing. I wish we could just grab that, that statement. Does it matter whether your heart is broken a little or a lot? Does it matter if your life is heavy a little bit or very heavy? What? is God's desire to heal it, to restore it. I don't care if you're carrying a 10-pound weight. If you carry it long enough, you're going to get tired. You may be carrying a 100-pound weight, and you're going to be brought to conf a confrontation with that weight sooner than later but it doesn't matter the size of it. You're it God is, has a desire that you don't carry that burden anymore. He doesn't want you to carry that false identity another moment. And he's, and he's immediately confronting, again, Holy Spirit saying, the Holy Spirit has to bear witness in my life, in your life, especially if I'm ministering to someone, you're ministering to someone. You, we have to know that God's purpose in this moment is to bring healing. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. What happened where Jesus went? Consistently, what happened? People were healed consistently, whether it be from some physical situation or from the brokenness of a life like the woman who was caught in adultery or the woman at the well. There was no physical illness, no physical problem. Was it any less miraculous that they were healed and restored? No. Because it was always about healing. It will continue to be about healing. And the Holy Spirit is creating a, that message. We have a desire to heal it, but what? If what? What does it say? If you'll let us. If you'll let us. Because what is the only restriction to that? What is the only problem? Why would he not do it? What's the only hurdle that gets put up in his way? It's us. He is ready. He is willing. He is anxious to bring this restoration into our life. He is totally committed to helping us identify what's going on, the root in the story, so that we can actually get rid of it. He's committed to it, and she says it very well. She puts the cards on the table. This is about healing. There's nothing more important than finding within ourselves that basic desire unadjusted, uncharted, unrestricted, a desire for healing.
This is a powerful moment when the Holy Spirit begins to re reveal truth beyond our basic comprehension because we know from a, from a statement we'll get to in a minute, what are they entering into? Now, we see it as a garden. What are they actually entering into? What does, in this scene, for those of you who've seen it or read the book, what's one of the last things that, that the Holy Spirit says to him before she disappears from the garden? That this garden is what? Sorry? Yeah, it's you. This garden is you. So where's the Holy Spirit entering right now? Where are they going? Into him. Into his story. Into his life. They are, I, I, symbolically, I love this. I mean, again, I, I don't want to stretch this movie before, beyond where he goes, but the Holy Spirit right now is entering into his story. The Holy Spirit has to enter into our story. There will be no healing until he comes inside there. And the beauty of what he does, he functions like a laser instead of a stick that you poke around turning over rocks. Because if he entered in that way, it would hurt us. Poking and jabbing and looking for something. He already knows where he's going. And he takes us there like a laser. He, he wants to expose the incorrect thinking, the incorrect perspective, and find the source of, of what's really going on in our life. So they're entering in. And, in, and under bullet C, it says, this is a powerful moment when the Holy Spirit begins to reveal truth beyond our basic comprehension. Rarely do we call a mess beautiful. I can't really tell you how many times when people come in to my office, especially after they've been delivered, after they've had this real healing moment, but two weeks later or three weeks later or four weeks later, they're coming in and some of the excitement of that's kind of wearing down. The emotions aren't running quite as high and it's, it's finding a leveling out place. And they're starting to tell me, well, I had this thought and I had this thought and I, w I was here and I was here. And I, and I tell them, yeah, isn't it remarkable? I'm so glad you're there. I'm so glad you're having those thoughts. I'm so glad that you're considering this. I'm so glad because what they're considering a mess, like this isn't going where I thought it was going to go. What the Holy Spirit lets me see is, no, you are in a wonderful place. You may be seeing what you're, what you're walking through is doubt. I'm seeing God restructuring your mind and taking you down new pathways. I'm seeing him taking you, as I, as I say often, in our minds because of years and years of training, we very often, if we're, if we're at point X, our minds have been trained to go to Y. If you're in a moment of confrontation, go to anger. If you're, if you're in, a, in a moment of frustration, go to fear. I mean, it's, we're, we, our, we've trained our minds for sometimes 30, 40, or 50 years to go down these very familiar pathways, and God's saying, by my spirit, I'm going to train you, to, instead of going X to Y, I want to train you to go from X to Z. See, the Holy Spirit has to retrain our mind, has to retrain our emotions. That's called sanctification, the salvation of our soul. He has come by the Spirit to retrain and to rebuild the pathways of our mind and the emotions and where we go in our heart. And he does it very well. He's very, very good at it. But we have to let him. And sometimes we feel anxious because I didn't expect to be thinking this. I didn't expect to be feeling this. I say, I know. Isn't it wonderful that God's bringing it to your attention? Because all it says, he's growing you through it, and he's retraining your mind. Remember, remember the children of Israel coming out of Egypt? Now, they've been slaves for 400 years, reckon how their minds were working. What did they know? They knew bondage. Now, when they came out of, they came out of Egypt, he's, he's telling them, it's only an 11-day journey to Canaan. 11 days. Why couldn't he take them there? Because the Amalekites were in that, in that 11 days, and he knew he couldn't bring them out of bondage and take them right into war. Because where were they wanted to go? Right back to Egypt. So he took them down the Sinai Peninsula 18 months before he brought them to Kadesh. What was he doing in that 18 months? 
Who had been feeding them in, in Egypt? Who brought them food? Yeah, Pharaoh. Pharaoh fed them. So they not only were slaves to him, in bondage to him, they also saw him as the benefactor because he was the one feeding them. But, but who fed them for the next 18 months? God did. To retrain them. To get them out of the mindset that, that Pharaoh was their benefactor so that they would begin to shift their trust from somebody back there into, in, into, into God here in the wilderness. To trust him. So that maybe when they came to Kadesh, they would enter into the promised land. He had to retrain them because they'd known 400 years of slavery. That's all their minds knew. He was having to retrain their minds, retrain their hearts to trust and have faith and expect and to love each other and to work together. All those things that had to be done. So we shouldn't be surprised that he's still working to do exactly the same thing. Now, it's so important to convey this particular moment as we minister to others. They must see in us that God sees this moment so painfully described as beautiful and filled with hope. The mess has often seemed endless and beyond hope as someone is in the midst of it, but God sees from the true perspective that perspective must be conveyed to us by his spirit. Again, somebody may be telling you something that's terribly broken in their life and sitting there because of what we know where, we've also, where we might have already walked, the life transformed by what he's already done, that we can see that mess and say, thank you, God, that you see it as beauty. Thank you that you are prepared. Thank you that you are ready. Thank you that you, are, that you already see so that we can convey that that mess that they see has a perfect opportunity for God to grow them and to teach them. Okay, there's something very special I want to plan here tomorrow. What is it that will be planted there tomorrow? What's going to be planted in this place that they're preparing? We know literally it's the body of his daughter. What's really being buried? His anger, his sadness. I'm sorry, his pain. That's really what's going to be buried there tomorrow. Listen to those words again. There is something very special I want to plant here tomorrow. So something's going to be buried. So what, what, what will happen from that sadness? What will happen from that grief? What will happen from that pain? What will happen from that brokenness? When all that's planted, when all that's, when all that's, he lets go of all of it, what grows? Man, we see joy growing. We see this moment in him, this moment that he didn't think would ever come. He never anticipated what he was going to experience that following day that we see late in the movie when the butterfly comes and lands on his face. He, he didn't expect those moments. He never expected from the day that she was kidnapped, he never expected another day of real freedom, another day of real joy, another day that was really healed and really whole. He never expected another day of that. Most who come in never expect another day of freedom. Most don't expect another day when life can truly be joyful. And I'm not carrying the sadness or the brokenness of something that once happened because we've just learned to adjust to it. The Holy Spirit has healing prepared that is beyond coping. The Holy Spirit has fully prepared the victory found in overcoming. What is the difference? Coping means we have thrown a blanket over it. Overcoming means it cannot be found or rediscovered ever again. You want to cope or you, you want healing. You want, to, you want to overcome. I want to get rid of something so permanently that if I even went looking for it, couldn't find it. I want it to be that gone. 
again, I, I'm, I have to stop it almost on every phrase if, it, because there's just so much in it. Listen to those words. I have to prepare the ground. We must dig up all the roots or they will return and harm the new growth. This is why I commit, we commit to walk with somebody up to a year, longer if necessary, after they're delivered. What are we doing? You see, I can't afford to let the old return start to grow because, because it will harm everything that's already been done. So we commit to not just for the moment of healing, but to walk with people, to talk through the issues, the next questions that they have, the next things that they discover about themselves. We have to be ready and the ground has to be prepared. This is very descriptive of what is happening in the, in the deliverance ministry. I share routinely that the problem with most counseling help is that the, the root is rarely found. I can't tell you how many times I've had people in my office that have been in counseling for years. You want to, how many years? So about three years, as young as you are? No. 20 years? 30 years? 30 years of counseling? And, and at times more than one counselor. What happened? I, it wasn't me. Please understand, there's no bragging this. What happened? Holy Spirit was involved and got us where? Got us to the root. Got us to the false identity that, that had been carried for so long since she was about 16 years old. You see, this is, this is what's possible. Counseling rarely gets to the root because there will be no root until the identity, the false identity is found. Again, that's, I know that that hits people oddly. But again, when I, t when I tell you, it, and it, if it ever makes sense that this is not a book to tell us what to do, we're, we're not human doings, that this is a book of being, it's a book of identity because we're human beings, and God says, I am that I am, not I do that I do. If we know it is a book of being, we will understand why Satan attacks being and not doing, because he knows powerfully well if, you, if he can get us to believe something wrong about ourselves, a false identity about ourselves, that that wrong identity will begin to produce a false fruit. Until we know that and embrace that, we will never go to the root, which is the false identity that Satan gave us. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, how does Satan create permanence to a temporary hurt? He attaches an identity to it. All of us were hurt. We didn't get to escape childhood without hurtful moments at home or at school or whatever it happened to be. We all went through moments of hurt. Satan attaches, creates them, makes them permanent by attaching an identity to it. I'm poor. Well, it's because I'm weak. It's because I'm unwanted. It's because I'm, I'm not worth it. Over and over, that moment of hurt, which was temporary, suddenly became very fixed in our life because Satan attached an identity to it. And until that identity is discovered and broken, that hurt from that childhood is going to absolutely persist. I wrote here in bold letters, in this ministry of deliverance, identity, false identity is the root that must be extracted because identity produces fruit. If we don't remove the, fruit, the root, it will absolutely grow again and do similar or worse damage than before. We're always moving toward an extraction of that which has been cancerous and devastating in lives for a long time. Walking with a person for months, years, is necessary to make sure that the old does not have a chance to grow again. So this next scene is as the Holy Spirit and Mac begin to clear the place and to prepare the soil. comment here about that. Both are digging. 
This will not work in ministry if the person with whom you're visiting is not willing uh, there to seek this revelation and truth. You can't fight a person into healing. If, if they're not there helping you dig, helping you, being a willing participant in this, in this deliverance, it's not going to go very far. It just can't go very far. It's perfectly okay. I don't get anxious. I don't get frustrated. But you can clearly tell that somebody either came, they came to talk or they came, they came to be delivered. And you can tell the difference pretty quickly. That's profound. In this ministry of deliverance and in the ministry of all healing, truth can be poisonous. Do you know that? Truth can do great damage. Truth can so devastate and decimate a life unless what? It can devastate and destroy if recklessly handled. If you mix truth with love, it suddenly contains incredible healing properties. If I mishandle truth, try to use it alone, try to use it according to how I think it should be used, to say it the way I think it ought to be said, it will do, it will do damage. But if that truth is mixed with love, it will bring the freedom promised. An- another, another example. Knowledge in this ministry can certainly be poisonous unless it is mixed with truth, which is Holy Spirit revealed truth, that will make the combination powerful. If God shows me something, I suddenly have a knowledge of something going on in your life because you tell me or someone else tells me and I suddenly have this knowledge and I mishandle that knowledge and I don't mix it with truth that's been revealed by the Holy Spirit, it will do real damage. It will create real harm. And you wonder why why sometimes people don't want to be ministered to. They don't want the one-on-one. They don't want the last thing they got. They don't want the accusations they got. They don't want the criticism they got. They don't want those kind of things. They don't want to come see me because that's exactly what they expect. They expect that they're going to get the same thing that they've always gotten, which was somebody working real hard to come to a conclusion so that they could give you this list of do these five things and your life will be better and realizing that all they've done by giving you those five things is set you up for your next failure but they didn't want to get to the root and they didn't have any real desire, not, not real ones, to mix truth and knowledge and mix truth with love.
This is one of those scenes, and I think I wrote this, that this is a strange yet remarkable conversation. It likely expresses a very simple version of most people's view of good and evil. This is what I want you to hear. The Holy Spirit must bring you or the person to whom you are ministering into the error of yours or their own opinion. Say that again. The Holy Spirit must bring you or the person to whom you're ministering into the error of your or their own opinion. Right now in this, whose opinion is determining good and evil? Max. See any error in that? See any devastating outcome from that kind of perspective that, that he's saying that when you become the judge, when you become the discerner of good and evil, as a matter of fact, we go back into to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The only restriction God said was what? Don't eat from what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat from the tree of life every day. Eat in abundance from this tree of life. Just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because we are not equipped to eat from that tree. And he knew what would happen, and it happened, because when we try to become the discerners of good and evil, what, what did the Jews do? Over 700 laws written down trying to get this right, trying to get this separated. This is what we can do. This is what we can't do. They tried to get them all written down so that we could know what was good and we could know what was evil. So we, we, if we did what was good, we'd make God happy. If we could avoid what was evil, it would make God happy. So they worked real hard. Well, I will assure you that we are not equipped to know the difference between good and evil outside of the Holy Spirit, who is the discerner of both. There will be no healing without this correction. Why? Brokenness finds its fodder in the errors of our own understanding. Why does brokenness persist so long? Why do we find it in lives 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, how can brokenness stay so long? Because it's feeding off the incorrect concepts, the incorrect, the incorrect perceptions of our own mind. Some of them very obvious. I'm broken, and we come into church week after week after week and leave with the same brokenness we came in with. How in the world can that be possible except that we're living not in the openness to what God wants to do, but in the frameworks of our own mind. And those have to be broken down. They have to be challenged. We have determined, believed, and convinced ourselves of many things. Primarily, God is at the top of the list. The Father, the Holy Spirit, ourselves, the people that hurt us, the people who have tried to help us, we have errors the errors are held in fortresses built by us in our own minds. The Holy Spirit knows exactly how to pull these strongholds down. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, it says, casting down imaginations. But why? Because in verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That word, the strongholds is a fortress. They're fortresses that we build in our own mind. No one can build them there but us. We build the fortresses in our own mind to give Satan a place to live. We furnish them. We keep them painted. We keep them well decorated. Satan lives there, and we give him access through those strongholds to be able to touch our hearts and, to ru and ruin our lives, and we do it. But we're capable at any time of tearing down those strongholds and being free, and it says it very clearly. Casting down imaginations, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Let's continue.
this section almost seems to disconnect from the specific healing that Mac needs. However, we must remember that what is occurring is that a place, soil, is being prepared for what will be buried tomorrow. Nothing, should say, nothing will be buried and nothing will be restored unless we give up playing God. Get that? How do we, how do we play God? Sorry? We assume we know. We judge. We set up lives of comparison. We condemn when we have no right. We misunderstand when, when truth is available. We accept the leadership of our own mind. We follow the leadership of our own hearts. We play God. Our opinion of what has transpired in our stories must be surrendered for truth. Most people come in convinced they already know and are already right. There's no room for a second corrective perspective. Most don't come in because they think they've already figured out what's really going on. Let's continue. Can we see by that first statement that healing can only come when we exchange roles with God? We stop playing him and let him have his way in us. She says, you weren't meant to do any of that. You weren't meant to know what was to, to be the discerner of good and evil. You weren't meant to, to, for, that, for that to be adjusted. You weren't meant to play God. And there will truly be no healing until, until we're willing to exchange roles with him. How many of us, like the woman who had the issue of blood, has spent many hours, much time, trying to solve our own problem? Trying to work it through, trying to just find the new angle, find the new understanding, make the next phone call, gather the next piece of information. How many hours have we spent trying to solve that which only God can solve. You see, there will be no healing until those roles reverse, until we recognize we can't and recognize that he can. But most of us start from, well, God can't because he sure hasn't done it so far, so it must be up to me to do. We switch roles and recognize I can't, but he very willingly will. You know what you call that? This is, I would, I would probably give y'all some big bonus prize if you knew what, what you're actually looking at up there. That's called a fractal. That cleared, that cleared up? <laughs> a fractal is something that when you look at what's immediately surrounding you, it's a mess. But you begin to recognize that these messes are interconnected and they create something that has a perfect design to it. So you couldn't see that when you, you were close because you could only see this section right in here. But when the camera pans away, you recognize he's sitting in something that's perfectly designed. I love that. I love that picture. What do you think? It's still a mess. Yes, it is, Mac. Wow, wonderful and perfectly in process. I hope that helps because, because we're on a journey and it's a, it, it truly is a wonderful one. 
wonderful one. Please hear the heart of God in these few statements. He is not alarmed that you have questions. He is not bothered by your uncertain steps forward. He's not doubting the possible outcome due to your hesitation. He is, however, searching for that heart and mind, willing and ready for the healing that was earlier mentioned. But the ground must be prepared. You see, why did he say it's still a mess? When somebody leaves my office the first time, the second time, maybe the third time, what's, what's the conclusion? Well, it still feels like a mess. Yeah, it is perfect. Perfectly in process, perfectly finding the journey. What an amazing opportunity when somebody sits down and, and finally is serious about dealing with what's going on in their life. They're finally in this place preparing soil. Because there are many things in our life that we need to let go of, many burdens, much hurt, that we need to let go of so that he can grow something beautiful in his place. And he's very, very willing to do it. I have one question. I'm not going to back up to it, but Max sitting there on the ground now, having just had this conversation with the Holy Spirit, where do you think McKenzie is now, mentally and emotionally and spiritually? Where, where, where do you see him? Why do you, what's your opinion? Where do you think he is? He's thinking, but he's still yeah, wonderful place, isn't it? He's thinking but confused. And, and it shouldn't bother you that he's there if you're ministering to him because it's certainly not bothering God that he's thinking because, man, if I can get you thinking, if I can get you considering as long as you're open, he will do remarkable things. Others, other thoughts. Where is he mentally, emotionally, and spiritually right now? You think he's still angry about his daughter's death? Absolutely. Has healing come yet? No. Is the ground being prepared? Yeah, it is. It sure is. I hope y'all can understand how much fun it is for me, for you, for us to watch that ground be prepared. Someone came up to me this morning and shared after I'd preached on that passage when this man comes to Jesus and said, I want to follow you. Wherever you go, I'll go with you. And the first things out of Jesus' mouth was, well, foxes have holes. It's like, apparently, he didn't hear what the man said. Because if, if it hurt him, there would have been some excitement. Like, oh, wow, got somebody else coming along. That's great. Some excitement, some encouragement, some acceptance. All those things would have been going on. But here's Jesus' statement, well, foxes have holes. And I'm sure the guy says, what? That, let, let, me, let me say it again. And then he come, Jesus continues, and birds have nests. And the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And as I shared, I, yesterday was the first time I understood that verse. I don't know why, but I never understood it before. My conclusions about it had really been wrong. Because Jesus was just making a very simple statement when he said, the foxes have holes for a home. The birds have nests for a home. And I'm looking for a home in you. Beautiful. But I also shared with you, it was kind of curious to me why Jesus said, I have no place to lay my head. He could have said, I have no place to sit. I have no place to be. He said, I have no place to lay my head, which would infer a bed. And I, and I mentioned to you this morning that generally two things happen in bed. One is sleep and the other is not sleep. And I don't think anybody's confused. Because a fox will reproduce in that hole. A bird lays eggs in that hole to reproduce. Where does he reproduce himself? In us. He has this great desire to find a place to lay his head. So that he can form in us the love that he has. His love, his goodness, his kindness. But it was also shared with me after the service this morning that 
that God had given this person, uh, Sammy, given this, Sammy this verse from Genesis chapter 7 that said, and he said, he said, I don't even understand why God would give it to me until this message this morning. And it says that the, that the doors of the ark will remain open. Strange connection, but a powerful one. Because the, where was the provision for these animals? Where was the provision for Noah and his wife and for their families? Where was the provision? It was in the ark. And the doors will stay open, but there will come a time when that door is going to shut. We get to live in the wonder, wonderful place right now because the doors of the ark are open. The provision of God, the healing, the restoration, everything that he would love to give us, the, that full provision is still on, it's right there. The door of the ark is still open. So we have an opportunity to enter into the fullness of everything that he has. We have a potential of being healed, being whole, being restored, being renewed. Old things pass away. All things become new. All of that's still open. The full provision of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, his love, his goodness, everything he has for us still within reach because the door's still open. Again, there will come a day. We know the day. We don't have to even wonder there will be a day when that closes, just as it did in that day. There'll be a day, but right now, there's no reason not to be fully whole, to be fully filled, to be fully restored, to be fully and dynamically saved. No reason, because the door's still open. We have access. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.